Hello, and welcome to another moment with Eric Fleming. I am your host, Eric Fleming. And it is good to have yet another podcast episode jam-packed with guests. And I, and I really appreciate y'all hanging in there with me. Uh, but as you can tell, based on the guests that we've had, uh, every minute has been worth it. And I hope that uh, that you've had the time uh, to listen to a whole podcast. Uh, if you fast forward or jump back to a particular guest you wanted to hear, that's fine. Uh, I get it. But uh, I really hope that you take the time to listen to all of these guests because I really, really have been blessed. I have been really blessed to have quality people coming on this program and uh, offering insight. And I'm excited about the guests that are lining up for next year already. Uh, I, I, I almost got February and January full. So, uh, I say full, at least one guest per episode already. And, um, yeah, so this is really, really exciting times. Despite all of the negative rhetoric that you are hearing outside, right? Um. There's a lot of anger going on this holiday season. A lot of people getting riled up, not happy about prison exchanges, not happy about sporting uh, decisions, Uh, not happy about folks getting money from a state in the name of reparations, right? And And it's black folks that are upset. Black folks are really upset right now. Uh, there's some reason they should be and there's other reasons, well, you might need to tone it down a notch or in the case of reparations, maybe you need to have an intelligent conversation before we start going off on folks. But anyway, uh, black folks, white folks, all folks, everybody seems to be a little on edge and I just, I just really want people to kind of chill because it's the holiday season. Uh, You know, we still got Christmas and New Year's to get through, right? And then after January 1st, you know what I'm saying? It's (laughs) it's fair game, I guess. Back to to the arena we go. But yeah, it's, this is, this has really been a, without getting into specifics, very hostile season. Uh, and, and especially in the world that we deal in on this show in politics, it's, it's getting really, really hostile. And some incredible things have happened, right? An 18-year-old black man uh, got elected mayor of a city in Arkansas. Even, even the black man... Uh, Chris Jones, who was running for governor, became a fan of this young man uh, as he was campaigning. And even though Chris fell short, he celebrated this young man winning because he's the youngest, they say he's the youngest black mayor. He might be the youngest mayor ever, right? I mean, you can't vote till you're 18. So if he's at 18, 
that's pretty much the line, right? Um, so, yeah, I mean, those are kind of feel-good stories, right? And, you know, we should be celebrating a lot of things. The four largest cities in the United States have an African-American mayor, right? And I know one of them is going to be up for election in 2023. But as of right now, all four of the largest cities in the United States have black mayors at the same time. And then, you know, there were some people saying, well, don't forget about this. We're not talking about the first ever. We're talking about for the first time, simultaneously, the top four cities in the United States have African-American leadership at the top. And that's a sign of progress. Uh, and when you look at the backgrounds of these individuals, uh, it's pretty diverse. So it's not like a set formula of who's going to get in. It's not a set community that they represent other than black folks. Right. Um, you know, you have two men and two women. So, you know, these are moments that need to be celebrated, right? And and in the political realm, there's a lot of other stuff going on that's good, that's outside of the realm of politics. Um, But, you know, since this is what we deal with, you know, I just threw out a couple of stories to maybe make y'all smile or reflect and realize that the road is still bumpy, but we're still moving forward, (laughs) you know, and all the noise that you're hearing. So the best, the best analogy I can give you real quick, and then we'll, we'll get into the guests. It's like last call or last song at the party. You know, everybody's, fired up for that they they're making their way to the bar or they're making their way to the dance floor and you know but at the end of the day that party's over with and a lot of the people that are making noise right now that seem to be trying to hurt or disenfranchise black people it's last call guys it's the last dance you can make all the noise you want, but when that song is over, when that last drink is poured, party's over. And it's going to be a new day in this country, and you're going to have to deal with it. If you can't accept it, you'll have to deal with it. And that's all I'm going to say about that. <laughs> you know, uh, because like I said, we've got a jam-packed show, and I and I want to go ahead and get to these guests, so... My first guest is Jennifer Taub. Uh, Jennifer Taub is a legal scholar and advocate devoted to making complex business law topics engaging inside and outside of the classroom. She is the author of two books, Big Dirty Money and Other People's Houses. Her research and writing focus on corporate governance, banking and financial market regulation and white collar crime. Similarly, her advocacy centers on quote-unquote, follow the money matters, promoting transparency and opposing corruption. 
She is a professor at Vermont Law School, where she teaches contracts, corporations, securities regulation, and white-collar crime. She previously has been appointed visiting professor of law at Harvard Law School to teach a section of the course Corporations and the reading group White-Collar Crime and Public Corruption. Ladies and gentlemen, it's my honor and privilege, very distinct privilege, to have on the podcast Miss Jennifer Taub. All right, Professor Jennifer Taub, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Eric. How are you? I am doing lovely. Just ready for this holiday season to be over with. Glad the political season is over with. Uh and and now we can focus in on 2024, right? <laughs> I mean, I I kind of don't want to skip over all the holiday food. Can we do that? Yeah, let's let's not skip over the holidays. All right. Okay. So, Professor, I've got a I've got a thing where on my show I try to incorporate a quote if I can find it. Either it's something that you said or something that somebody said pertaining to the work that that you would do so uh i'm not going to tell you who said it but i'm gonna read the quote to you and let you uh kind of figure out how let you respond to it it says it's it's no accident that african-american citizens can be brutalized or even killed for minor alleged infractions while corporate wrongdoers escape prosecution or punishment When we see street corner drug dealers denied bail, but crooked pharmaceutical conglomerates pay out dividends, we are seeing the justice system work as intended. What is your immediate response to that? My immediate response is, did I write that? Actually, no, you (laughs) did not. (laughs) Uh, Ellie Mustel. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Was that the blurb for uh, Big Dirty Money? That's correct. Yeah, L.A., I love him. Um, we've, gosh, when did we first meet? I think I think we met almost a decade ago, and I was so honored that he agreed to blurb the book. Um, you know, what, what comes to mind for me are two um, groups or two people that I had featured in the book. So when we talk about someone dying on a street corner, I was talking about, at that time, Eric Garner, right? We could also be talking about George Floyd as well. And when I was talking about the pharmaceutical companies, I was talking about um, the Sackler family um, who uh, whose business, uh, Purdue Pharma, has pleaded guilty twice um, over the years, most recently in 2020, and not a single family member who has made billions of dollars off the sale of the very same drugs um, Oxycontin that led to these criminal, one, in one case, you know, both cases, plea, pleas led to these felony pleas. They haven't, they haven't um, been charged, indicted, or even um, accused of any crimes, and they've profited. Whereas we look at um, someone like um, someone like Eric Garner, who was on the streets in New York City trying to do what's basically an arbitrage, trying to sell cigarettes for, you know, loose for a higher price than he was able to buy them due to the discrepancies 
in New York versus where the cigarettes were coming in from in terms of taxes. You know, he was trying to do what business people do all the time, an arbitrage deal, you know, buy low, sell high kind of thing, exploiting the difference in prices and markets. You know, he's he's surrounded, tackled and and, and, and killed, uh, suffocated on a street corner. And um, I think the closer analogy I might have made, sorry to go on a bit with, with Eric Garner, is that the allegation there was tax fraud. Right. It was t- depriving the city the, in the state of taxes on cigarettes. And you think about, I mean, can we just talk about the people who are accused of not paying their taxes? One made it all the way up to the White House. And in the debates, he said, I don't pay my taxes. That makes me smart. Where were the plainclothes police officers at that debate? Why didn't they come up to Trump and surround him? We we know why. We know why. And it just it breaks my heart um, still that that we are still living in a nation where there's definitely not just two criminal justice systems in terms of um, in terms of, you know, street crime, but in terms of financial crime. And then that, as my book attests to the fact that in the U.S., if you want to get really, really rich, what you do is you engage in white collar crime and either don't get caught or get caught, pay a fine and you, you wrap it up inside of corporations and businesses so that the people who are benefiting the most keep their hands clean. I've gone on way too long. No, no, sorry, no, no. That's, a, that's no. what I think when I see Ellie's, uh, when I see Ellie's blurb. No, oh, that's, that's great because that, that leads me to these next set of questions. So what was the inspirational moment? And I'd use the term inspirational for lack of a better word that led you to devote yourself to exposing uh, corporate corruption? Ooh, so there are so many moments. I mean, some of this goes deep, but I think the most immediate, the closest moment was I had finished writing a book on the 2008 financial crisis, and it was called Other People's Houses, kind of an homage to um, Louis Brandeis, who's famous for a series of articles in a book from 1914 called Other People's Money, right? Mm. And that's something, actually goes back to Adam Smith. That's his idea that you want to make money, use other people's money, because if you lose it, it's their money. And if you make money, you're earning money on their, on their, you know, investment. So that's a concept. But um, it it also refers to when you talk about other people's money, it's kind of like the shrug, like, you know, people take unnecessary risks, right? And exploit others. So my book, Other People's Houses, about the financial crisis had come out. And I um, was at a bookstore in my town here in Northampton, Massachusetts. And this would happen whenever I talked about the book. Someone, you know, at the end, someone, the person in charge says, any questions for Jennifer? First question, why didn't any bankers go to jail? First question, it's always the question, right? Mm-hmm. And um, technically speaking, some mid-level folks did no high level bankers did in the US other countries they did but the bottom line is i didn't have an answer i don't like not to have answers not having answers is a place where i begin asking and it bothered me um and it was right around at that time i was already teaching a course on corporate and white collar crime but i didn't have the i didn't have the answers so i just dove in to white collar crime i began um researching it really intensely in 2016. Um, I became a co-author on the white collar crime casebook I was even using. And then come 2019, um, I had a book contract to write 
write the book. So it was kind of like I was angry and I wanted to know more. And I realized it was part of a systemic problem involving white collar criminal enforcement. I mean, it goes back farther than that, if you want to know, but. No, but it's, it, it goes it, back to my childhood, really. You know, if you see, if you okay. look in the book, it goes back to, you know, I grew up in Michigan in sort of an upper middle class suburb northwest of Detroit, highly segregated at the time. Things are much more racially integrated than they were in the 80s. Um, these are one of the suburbs that was kind of built up in the 70s right after a white flight that happened. I don't know, you know, I'm sure your your listeners are, even if they're young, um, they might remember that in the late 60s, there was all these factors that went on. I only understand it now as an adult, but between mand- mandatory busing, between the uprisings in the city um, in the summer of 68, you know, um, including in Detroit, there was this kind of explosion and exodus out to the suburbs. And so I was in one of those one of those particular suburbs. And what I noticed is... Um, Around that time in the 80s, there were these mandatory mandatory minimum sentences under criminal laws involving drugs, Um, but only certain kinds of drugs, right? And only certain kinds of defendants. And I also noticed in contrast when the white kids in my suburb would have parties and even if there was pot there or there was alcohol and, and they were underage, you know, if the police came, it was because we were being too loud and they broke up the party and everyone went home. People didn't go to jail. People didn't, you know, the cops weren't called, you know, and I, some, I had a boyfriend in high school who I was foolishly in love with because he was tall, dark and handsome. And he was this preppy kid who was a boarder. And it turns out he was embezzling money from the school store. So my first boyfriend was a white collar criminal. Wow. Of course the police weren't called. He was embezzling it because back then people didn't have credit cards, right? So they didn't have Venmo. So the kids at the, if you were a boarder and you had to buy your books or candy or whatever, you'd go to the school store. It was a small place. And some kids' parents would give them an allowance, you know, it'd be on their account every month. And if they didn't use it, he would just cash out their allowance. Wow. Which is so bad, right? Yeah. I didn't know it was happening. Um, anyway, so it was devastating for me in a number of reasons, because it turns out he was also cheating on me, which shouldn't surprise you if he's also embezzling. <laughs> anyway, so for me, it's a very, but what I, what I will see, well, the thing is that bothered me the most, though, was I saw kids in the, you know, I would see that kids in Detroit would go to jail for dealing drugs and dealing them. And people in my suburb, you know, family members who were dealing, no, none of those people went to jail. They went to rehab, Knockwood, thank God. And got sober. And drugs are drugs are terrible. I mean, they're devastating. They kill people. They devastate communities. I don't think marijuana is a gateway drug, but I think you know, oxycontin and other pills are gateway drugs to you know to heroin and all these things. And so again, I saw the white suburban people being treated completely differently than you know minority kids um, in Detroit. Um, you know, white kids can make mistakes. Some keep making them and become terrible white collar criminals. And I see kids from, you know, cities who who were often black and who didn't have as much money at that time. I mean, things have changed a little bit in terms of integration. I just saw completely unfair treatment. So you say, why did I write this? Very personal. I felt like I had to talk about that because it seems one of the biggest injustices in our society around inequality of treatment. Yeah. Uh, and, I, and I get that. I, I feel that. I felt that in, in, in you telling the story, especially about the boyfriend. That I, I appreciate you, you sharing that. 
Where uh, are you from, by the way, Eric? Are so, you, where you, where... so I'm originally from Chicago. And, oh, Midwesterner too. Okay. Yeah, and then I, I spent, I went to college in Mississippi and ended mm-hmm. up spending 34 years there, and now I'm in Atlanta. So, yeah. Uh, turn it. Well, that it, seems like a big change. What did you, so tell me, I mean, I know you're asking the questions, but if you don't mind, <laughs> I'd love to know how you're different. I know time changes how things are, right? But the difference you saw in Chicago versus Mississippi and even Atlanta, what your experience is of that. So Atlanta is basically the culmination of Mississippi and Chicago. Right. And, and so um, it was culture shock coming down from Chicago to to Mississippi, but uh, my family on my father's side, that's where they were from. And so, uh, being in that environment, getting to see more people from that side of the family. I had a, I had a good comfort zone. And, you know, once I got into politics there, then, you know, I was in my wheelhouse at that point. Uh, what do you yeah. mean culture shock though? Cause there's so many things that could mean. Oh, well I meant uh, being in the, at that time, the second largest city in the United States to a place where at my dormitory, the, 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 the parking lot was still red clay and rocks. It wasn't even paved. Oh, so the rural. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was in Jackson. It was in the city. But yeah, yeah it was like they didn't even, they hadn't even paved the uh, uh, the parking lot for the dormitories back then. Everything, everything's really, really nice at Jackson State now. But I'm just saying, yeah, it mm-hmm. was, it was, it was a different vibe <laughs> when I first got there. Uh, so yeah, that was, it was a culture shock. Um, but, um, let me, <laughs> let's flip the roll back. Uh, in your book, you make the case that these incidents of white collar crime are not victimless. And you, you kind of highlighted that in that original answer. You broke it down though in dollars, 300 to $800 billion per year impact from white collar, as opposed to $16 billion a year impact from street level property crimes. Why do you think there is a public disconnect between white collar crime and the impact it has on society as a whole? I think there are lots of pieces to that, but I think the first part is it's not always visible. In that if you've been cheated on your phone bill, like charged for some service, or if you've gotten Venmoed and you, you know, if there, people don't always scrutinize their bills, right? You might not know. And an extra dollar charged to you, you might, you know, what are you going to do about it? If it's a million people, it's a million dollars. Whereas there, the, the, when, when a um, property crime is up close and personal, it's very memorable. Like you're not going to, if someone walks up to you and picks your pocket and then you go to look for your, or take your, per, your wallet out of your bag, what's in that wallet? Well, first of all, where's your wallet? You can't pay. Secondly, you've got your kids' photos in there pain in the ass you got to go get your credit cards even if it only is a few bucks it's really personal i think there's also so i think that it's it's more noticeable even if it's a, a smaller amount um and i think the the other reason is it um you know it gets even when these crimes are known and noticeable in the media um the press doesn't always call them crimes we don't always say someone is a felon. And part of that is 
if you're a white, if you're involved in a white collar crime, you're off, you're not always given that perp walk. Like when on TV, when someone's arrested um, for a street crime, if they are, we see them, you know, head down, hands behind their back and their copter. You can think of these iconic photos and people it's, it's without even words. You can say, well, that's a crime. I can see how that person's being treated. Whereas if you're, you know, accused of some of these um, white collar crimes, a couple things, even if there is a perp walk, which is not that likely, you they post bail. So you look at someone like Steve Bannon, he's now actually in prison, but for the longest time, he was um, he was charged with some wire fraud and uh, money laundering related to um, fundraising um, for a charity, like a fake charity involving Bill. Well, it wasn't entirely fake, but there was fraud involved his fundraising for supposedly building a wall at the southern border. He was out on bail forever. And even when he um, and then later he gets convicted for contempt because he refused to testify before Congress or what have you. But he's out on bail. He's on his talk show. He just, and even when he's finally incarcerated, he'll come out claiming he was, you know, political persecution or something. So I think part of it is if you have high status, um, money and power, you can, even if you ultimately go to prison, it doesn't look that way. And then you can do your PR campaign before, during, and after your sentence. So I think that's part of it's the framing. Yeah, I, I would agree with you on that. Um, I want to go back to the preface of the book. You expressed hope that Attorney General Garland's tenure, <clears throat> excuse me, at the Department of Justice would be a quote-unquote time anew for an independent nonpartisan justice system and that efforts would be made to not favor the white, wealthy, and well-connected. Has that hope diminished or is it too early to tell? I think it's too early to tell. There are some good signs and there are some not, you know, not hopeful signs. The one good thing was in the fall, um, Lisa Monaco, who's the deputy attorney general and had a very good track record prosecuting some of the Enron executives, has the second role, second in command at um, the Department of Justice. She gave several speeches and a speech, you know, it's more than words because they were warnings, speeches that were to the defense bar, lawyers who, um, corporate lawyers who in their practices sometimes do white collar defense for executives and businesses. And she warned about a crackdown. And then there has been, there have been many more um, white collar crime, high profile white collar crime cases um, that I have seen been brought as a result of that. And in fact, um, I was listening to an obscure podcast because I was trying to look around to see what the buzz was among corporate compliance people. And there is, you know, an obscure podcast that for corporate compliance officers who work inside of businesses and try to get people to behave. And they had these like emergency podcasts saying, oh, my goodness, this speech, here's what she's saying. And the thing that shocked them the most is that the Department of Justice was planning, shock, shock, to look at the past misconduct record. So if someone was suddenly you know, maybe they thought they were involved in um, a um, Foreign Corrupt Practices Act bribery case, like trying to bribe a foreign official in a, another country. They wouldn't just look at that as an isolated incident. They would open the file and say, oh, my goodness, six months ago, you did money laundering or what have you. And this was shocking to the compliance folks. And I'm thinking, wow, that tells us a lot about the kid gloves that the Justice Department was wearing 
uh, recently. So, uh, you know, I, I think it's too, fully too soon to tell. Um, I will I will know for sure that no one is above the law if this special prosecutor, Jack Smith, actually indicts Donald Trump. If Donald Trump is never indicted, I'm going to throw up my hands and say, oh, well. Yeah. I've never seen, you know, <laughs> you know I, criminal rise so high. I, I just can't, you know, that's yeah, what I got to say about that. Yeah, he's... He's been Teflon for so long, but you know it, it's going to be interesting to see. I, 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 uh, I just want to see the special counsel in a in a picture other than that robe he wears for the international court. I'd, I'd be glad when they finally get some well, shots of him in a regular suit. Well, what's so funny is, have you ever seen? There's that old Hitchcock movie called Rear Window with Jimmy Stewart and Grace Kelly. Do you know this one? And Jimmy Stewart's like laid up yeah. in his apartment with a cast. You know, Jack Smith is laid up in Europe, like a broken leg or something. Oh. A bicycle accident. So like That's on the right. one hand. That's right. On the one hand, all of a sudden I'm thinking, I've always been thinking, oh God, how is he really running this case? Laying in, you know, a bed with his, his cast. But Jimmy Stewart solved a murder. That's you right. Know, laid up like that right so let's let's hope and and jack's got better technology than jimmy did for sure um what major role has deregulation played in making white collar crime prevalent you know i think that is such a good question and i think it has to do with that kind of slippery slope mentality and i'm gonna tell a story and get at it sideways which is whenever i teach white collar crime i like to say to my students um, who here has never exceeded the speed limit on the highway? Hmm. Never find anyone who's raised their hand. I'm like, well, why do you, you know, what's the reason you exceed the speed limit? And it's like, well, I don't want to be late. I don't like to drive 65. Everyone else was doing it. You want to go with the flow of traffic, whatever. Ha- and I, you know, but it's also about, and I, well, what would happen if you get caught? Well, and this, this can be complicated. Um, some people like me, you know, if you're, if you're speeding, you think, well, I probably shouldn't be risking my health, safety, and others, but I'm running late. And you, you kind of think, well, if I get pulled over, I'll get a ticket. And the ticket would, you know, increase the cost of my um, my insurance. But, my, you know, I've got a pretty good record. You know, I don't know if we go through that process. There are other people, if they're pulled over, it's not going to look so pretty. They could be Sandra Bland. But we have these conversations. But the bottom line is everybody has exceeded the speed limit. And the reason is if you're in a job interview, no one's going to be denied a job because I got one traffic ticket. I mean, I've never been asked about my traffic record. Have you? When you get it, you know, that's not a thing. So that's um, when you start deregulating, when you start telling businesses it's okay to do things, you just keep moving the line. Like businesses are like us. If you have a law, not a criminal law, but like a civil law, you know, trademark law, well, I guess some of them can be criminal too. But like if you have, you know, there's certain things that you should be doing, like honoring your contracts or abiding by certain regulations. But some of these, they're not criminal. If you don't do it, you could pay a fine. And in all honesty, some things are inconvenient and businesses figure, you know what? I want to, I can't follow all these laws because I'm trying to do a product that or a service I sell nationwide. And if I, if, you know, if California says the print on the disclaimer has to be 12 point, but Mississippi says it has to say a different thing. What the heck am I going to do? So sometimes people just make compromises and say, in the worst case, someone gets upset with us and we just settle with them, right? So, so, but when you start saying we're not going to, when regulators don't even enforce those things, they just put things on the books, then people start saying, you know, law is murky. It's a mess. It's not even morality. It's not about ethics. It's about stupid bureaucrats. 
and we're just not going to do anything. And you start getting business people who look at criminal law the same way. Like it's not, you know, it's not a requirement. It's a serving suggestion. Right. It, you know, we don't have to do it. It's just like a speed limit and, you know, just drive with the flow of traffic and you'll be fine. And the problem is the flow of traffic starts going from 65 to 75 to 80 to 100. We're on the autobahn and no <laughs> one really knows how to drive. So that's, I think, and the trouble is the businesses aren't driving, you know, a Tesla. Well, God forbid, self-driving. They're, they're starting to drive like, you know, giant trucks and right. planes and, every, you know, so anyway, that's my, that's my sort of explanation. I think it just, it gets faster and faster and more and more dangerous. And then the airbags don't go off. Right. So in, in, in the book, you advocate six fixes to address white collar crime. In the sake of time, I'm not going to go over all of them. The only one, though, I, that seems to be going is the funding of the IRS. And well, increasing, you mean, going up? Yes. Oh, there are a couple there. So the IRS funding is going up. The Department of Justice has kind of restructured. So they've now dedicated FBI agents to really focus on white collar crime. I'm seeing that. And there's one other on there, which is a law did get passed um, at the end of 2020, as part of the must-pass budget authorization, uh, defense budget authorization bill, they do have more transparency around these so-called shell companies. There's a law in place to do that, and that's going into effect soon. So there's some good things happening, but you know, more needs to be done, obviously. So, well, let's let me let me confine let me combine this question this way, so it'd be the final one. Um. Can these fixes be achieved without addressing systemic racism? And to be honest, can we really achieve reform anyway if, as Laura Acton says, power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely? The answer is no to both. Okay. Right. We can. So, and the question is, but then what's the answer? So in other words, all of this, right? Systemic racism permeates all power structures. It's kind of like um, Isabel Wilkerson's book about caste, right? Caste, embedded into caste is race in this country. So that's going to be part of everything. And to the extent that white collar crime is about the ability of the privilege to advance without consequences, it's going to obviously benefit the most privileged, which it, surprisingly, most of the, the billionaires are white men, right? That shouldn't, it, those are where the opportunities are. I'm not saying every billionaire is a white collar criminal. I'm just making a point about race and caste and all of that. Um, and yeah, you know, can we, um, are, what are we even doing here? I think just like democracy is an idea and we're trying to move close to it and we've never fully had a full democracy here. We know what it looks like when we start rolling things back. And so I want to roll things forward. I believe there can be critical mass at some point. I think we can, you know, I think we're in a dangerous place in our country now um, that Trumpism helped to reveal that we, that people didn't realize, you know, what things look like when you turn over millions of rocks and see what people are really thinking and doing. But the reality is now there's awareness and now there's a pushback. And I think we just need to all keep speaking the truth, keep trying, keep pointing out the gaps and keep trying to hold folks accountable. Um, and 
concentrations of power are a real problem. And the good news about that is, is if you look at someone like Elon Musk, we can see right here what happens when you give a billionaire all the cookies. I mean, you just look at this guy. I've never, you know, Elon Musk is doing worse for capitalism than any, any you know, socialist newspaper or union could. I mean, this guy is, an ex you know, this is a billionaire who has more money and power than almost anyone in the world. And he's, a, you know, a complete clown and racist jerk. And we're looking at this going, really, this is a, this is supposed to be what capitalism brings us. Obviously, things are out of control and we can see what absolute power brings. Um, you know, so we'll see what happens to him in his civil law cases. I'm not suggesting that he's acted criminally, but I wouldn't be surprised. So in about a minute, how can people get more of this? How can people get more Jennifer Todd and have <laughs> access to it? By the way, if you can tell, she has a podcast, the way she flipped those questions on me. Go ahead, Jennifer. Go ahead. <laughs> well, I just started a podcast. It launched on my birthday on December 4th, and it's called Booked Up with Jen Todd. And, um, and my first guest was Dahlia Lithwick with her book, Lady Justice. Ellie Mistal has said yes. Um, he has the paperback edition of his his book. And now I am about the Constitution and I am totally spacing. Ellie's going to get mad at me on um, on the name of his book. I can see the cover of his book. You know which book I'm talking about. Yes, ma'am. Ellie, I'm sorry. Um, anyway, he's going to be coming on in the spring when that that when that comes out. And it's, you know, that's one way to, to find me, Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast. I'm also on Twitter, but I'm hoping to leave. So I'm um, on Mastodon. I'm over there as Jen Taub at mstdn.social. And I'm over on Post um, as Jennifer Taub, my full name. And God knows, I think I'm on Instagram. You know, and right now there's a sort of diaspora, um, you know, as a result of, of Twitter. I'm also over on Facebook. I'm also at my house with my kids and dog and so on. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, ladies and gentlemen, this has been Jennifer Taub. I'm also over there on Mastodon with you. And I appreciate you coming on and, and, and sharing some of your wisdom with us. Thanks for having me. I'm going to go find you on Mastodon. All right. And okay, guys, we're going to catch y'all on the other side. All right, and we are back, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, so uh, that was that was cool, wasn't it, uh, Jennifer Taub? Uh, she, you, you can tell she's got a podcast and she's a natural with a microphone. See how she flipped it on me? She started asking me questions. I was like, wait a minute, it's the, are we doing her show now? Okay, cool. No, but uh, uh, she is, uh, if you haven't read the book, get the book. Uh, Big Dirty Money. Uh, it is very, very detailed as far as uh, what corruption really looks like. Uh, I think that's part of the, the issue that we have is that we might get a news story here or there, but if you don't get one of the, uh, the major daily newspapers like the Times, like the Tribune, uh, the Wall Street Journal, or, or you know, one of those, um, the post, you, you, you may miss out 
if you just get the headline and who went to jail or who got indicted or whatever and not get the detail of it, how it got to that point, uh, you miss out on, on a lot of things. And I think that's part of our problem why we don't think it's that big of a deal. But in her book, she breaks it down step by step. And, and, uh, and it's, it's, I mean, it's a read. It's a, it's not a heavy read. Most, most books are not heavy reads in the sense that, well, nothing compares to war and peace. Okay. Let me put it that way. But it's, it's, it's not that, you know, that kind of a book, but it is very, very detail oriented. So you'll get an understanding, almost get into the mind of why these people think they can get away with doing what they can do. And why a justice system that is supposed to protect all of us protects one one group more than the other, uh, especially if they got some money. So, uh, and uh, I, I'm excited that uh, we'll uh, we'll get to do this again sometime. All right. So now, uh, I, I my next guest is uh, uh, another professor. Uh, somebody who works in the field of sociology, uh, which is the study of us, right? Uh, I remember in college, you know, that was one of those classes that I, I really, really got into and did well in. Um, and it was because it's fascinating. Right. Outside of history, for me, sociology is is amazing. And so, you know, when people say, well, Fleming, you love politics. Well, if you don't have a grasp of history and you don't have a grasp of sociology, you're not going to be successful in politics. Guarantee you that. You know, I mean, you may luck up and win an election, but I'm just saying Winning an election and being an effective statesman once you get there, that's two different things, right? So if you really understand and you, you embrace the study of people and, and society as a whole, and then you, you understand how that society got to the place where it is, you can govern. And that's my lecture for today. Anyway, so uh, this lady... Barbara Harris Combs, this professor, has received her PhD in sociology with a concentration in race and urban studies from Georgia State University in 2010. She also holds a Juris Doctor degree from the Ohio State University and an MA in English from Xavier University in Ohio. She brings this interdisciplinary background to her study of society. Her research focuses on the role place as a focuses on the role place as a geographical, social, cultural, and class construct has on modern identity formation and human relations, especially race relations. She is the author of From Selma to Montgomery, The Long, Road, Long March to Freedom, a book about the Selma campaign for voting rights. The book chronicles the marches, placing them in the context of the long civil rights movement and considers the legacy of the Voting Rights Act drawing parallels with contemporary issues of enfranchisement. Her current book, 
which we're going to be talking about, is Bodies Out of Place, Theorizing Anti-Blackness in in U.S. Society. And it was just released this fall. She is published of... she has been published in a variety of academic journals, including Critical Sociology, Sociological Spectrum, American Behavioral Scientists, Sociology of Race and Ethnicity, Journal of Urban Affairs, and others. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, oh, did I mention that she's teaching at Kennesaw State University? Okay, good. Uh, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, it's my honor and privilege to present as a guest on this podcast, Professor Barbara Harris Combs. All right, Barbara, I mean, Harris Combs, how are you doing? Doing well, thank you. How about yourself? I'm doing fine. I'm doing good. Um, and I'm really, really honored to have you on. And let me tell you why. Uh, okay. I have, a, I have an affinity for people, sociologists and social workers. Mm. Um, I think that it's, it's something that we all do, but people that actually take the time to perfect it and be able to be our mirror um, mm. and even with social workers to be able to kind of guide us through some of our doubts and concerns about what we are seeing amongst ourselves. Um, yes. that's very, very commendable. So, uh, I just wanted to get that disclaimer out of the way. So if I sound like a fan, you know, that's, <laughs> that's pretty much what's um, going on there. Um, oh my gosh, you are so kind. And I love the way you phrased, uh, uh, phrased that about being, you know, a mirror holding up that, uh, that mirror to self, but, but to society, really. So I love that. Thank you for that. Yes, ma'am. All right. So mm-hmm. normally, when I do these podcasts, if mm-hmm. I can, I try to find a quote that's either related to the person mm-hmm. or the work mm-hmm. that they do. Okay. So here is your quote. Hope is a radical act of resistance. What does that mean to you? Mm, I, I love that. I, um, I, I said that recently, um, and it was a question that was posed to me about how do I do this, uh, this work? And my initial answer was, you know, my faith. Um, as a sociologist, uh, we look at issues of identity. And if I were to tell people who I am, I'm a proud Black woman, I'm a Christian, I'm a mother, all of these things that I say, um, that my um, my my hope comes from that faith, but as I kind of mused through it, I realized that there is also this idea that I hope comes through in my uh, in my book, and that um, that I again am a proud uh, black woman in a society uh, that values you know neither females uh, nor uh, nor nor blacks. And so the act of being hopeful despite seeing uh, seeing rampant uh, anti-Black sentiments in the world is a radical act of resistance that, uh, that says, I will keep fighting, I see what you're doing, and I will not, uh, I will not give, uh, give up. Uh, and so as scripture says, hope does not disappoint. Right. And I, I remember one of the most powerful quotes 
Dr. King had said, something that really has caught me was that it, it's, and I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but he, he said it's, it's, it's tough when you're dealing with people that hope against hope, right? And so, you know, and so that you could tell even the way he said it, that was his mission was to bring back that concept that you talked about, that hope is actually resistance and not some pie in the sky thing that we can't attain. It's actually a tool. So absolutely. Yeah. So that, that's pretty cool. So um I'm trying. I was trying to figure out how to ask the question, okay. and and you may answer two questions in one. Why did mm-hmm. you choose the title of the new book, "Bodies Out of Place"? Mm, yes. Um, so actually, I've been writing this book for uh, for several years, and the working title for for most of the years, probably about five years, I've been working uh, on this. Um, and the working title until about eight months before publication was Blackout. Um, and it was around that time that, uh, that the people at UGA Press Marketing, they said, hey, there are a couple of books that have come out recently, you know, named Blackout. We don't want it to get confused in the market. And uh, we would really like for you to consider changing the title. Um, and, and really, uh, if I'm honest, in the beginning, they wanted me to call it bodies out of place or something like that. And I just didn't like the idea of that being on the jacket. I didn't want anyone to misconstrue that and think that I was saying that black bodies were out of place in US society. Um, And so I resisted it and the more, um, uh, the closer it got. And then when that happened, um, uh, I, I went to several friends and they said, lean in, embrace that. This is the theory that you, uh, that you develop. Yes. Call it, uh, call it that. And so for that reason, uh, it has the title bodies out of place, but I'm very, very deliberate. I am saying uh, that in trying to understand these contemporary continuing patterns, but the contemporary kind of versions of uh, of racism, of anti-Blackness that we see, I say that racism is an adaptable and changing beast. It, it adapts to try to sustain itself. And we need new lenses to help us see it as such uh, today. And so the framework that I develop is a way of seeing uh, continuing anti-Blackness in, uh, and I focus on US society, but in a global uh, perspective. And so I argue that it's this idea of the black body out of place. And when I say out of place, it might mean physical geographic place, but also social space. So Ahmaud Arbery is suspicious. What are you doing in this neighborhood? That it is that idea, that conceptualization, that cognitive act of of suggesting, oh, something's amiss. You must be here for some illegitimate purpose. You must have gained entry to this geographic space, physical social space by some some inappropriate means. And therefore, uh, my scrutiny of you is warranted and uh, uh, 
preemptive attempts uh, to contain you uh, are warranted. So for me, that's what, uh, what I mean when I say bodies uh, out of place, but I'm very clear, uh, we belong anywhere uh, that, uh, that we, uh, we decide we want to be. Right. And you did exactly what I thought you were going to do. You, you hit two questions in one. So, um, in your, in your book, you highlight certain events to accentuate the point about anti-blackness. Why did you feel those events were the best examples? Um, and I don't know that it's the best uh, examples. It's something that we're assaulted with examples uh, all the time. And, um, and so sometimes these are examples because people knew my research that they would share with me. I seldom sought out examples um, because I have to uh, be protective of my own psyche. And, and, and so um, it's a lot. Uh, in part, what I wanted to get across that in a continuing conversation about police violence in society, that I thought it, that that largely missed the point. Um, because for me, Black uh, bodies are subjected to continuing everyday uh, kind of forms of racism and violence. And I wanted people to understand that. I wanted them to talk about that. And so for me, violence wasn't just physical uh, or police uh, violence, state-sanctioned violence. Violence was a broad continuum that included patterns of political violence, that included you know, psychological violence, cultural exploitation. Um, and so I wanted to hit, uh, hit upon that. And so the first time this theory that I developed, the first time I use it is really an attempt to understand, um, and political uh, violence in the form of, uh, of attacks uh, on the franchise, and particularly attacks on uh, the forms of voting that were most commonly used uh, by, uh, by black and brown, uh, brown folks. And so the first article that I write is black and brown bodies out of place towards a theoretical understanding of systemic voter uh, suppression in US society. And for me, I was looking at the first election of a Barack Obama, which is accomplished by a coalition of minority voters, and then his re-election. Uh, but I looked at that as a um, as a point in society where there was a cognitive shift, a mental shift, because um, because. Every black person I know, I just turned 57. Every black person I know said uh, that I'll never see a black president in my lifetime. And in many ways, that kind of cognitive framework and thinking uh, operated to help us remain contained in certain, um, not just physical spaces, but again, you know, social spaces. And so when uh, Obama is elected, there's a cognitive shift going on. And I saw a pushback and attempt by, uh, by dominance, uh, white dominance, and then those who, uh, who adopted that white dominant frame to say, wait a minute, 
wait a minute, y'all getting too big for your britches. I know you're starting to think that you can do anything, go anywhere, but again, a pushback that said, all right, you know, okay, you got the vote, but uh, we can't have you deciding uh, elections. So, and, and pushback is a key word in your mm -hmm. book, kind of define pushback. What does that, what does yeah. that mean? What does that look like? Yay. So in the framework that, um, that I develop, I say it operates both as theory uh, and as uh, as method, um, and I talk about okay, uh, you uh, you need to start with certain basic tenets, certain uh, beliefs about how society is organized, and I say this is the way I see it from my positionality, um, and and so I describe how when uh, when there is um, when we see something when folks. Uh, again, uh, white dominance and those adopting that frame. When we see, when they see something that doesn't uh, doesn't fit, so perhaps you see uh, an interracial couple walking down the street. Right, the pushback can be on a continuum from amusement to up to and including death. Um, but in any attempt, whether it's and need to acknowledge, oh, look at that, you look at that couple, look at that, they don't belong together, look at that out of place uh, body. So I say that that that, uh, that kind of, of, um, of, of realization or that kind of uh, idea about how society should be organized operates as a form of social control that whether it is mild or the extreme uh, that it acts as a as a weight uh, that 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 seeks to control and seeks to uh, replicate the Jim Crow order. And so the pushback as it operates, it may not make, uh, the actual, like say the the couple that you see walking together, it may not change uh, their minds, but it operates as kind of a status degradation ceremony uh, that signals to other people around there's something uh, there's something amiss with that that doesn't belong, that doesn't fit, and so it is a an attempt um, to. Uh, to replicate, to push things back uh, to the old order that replicates Jim Crow or even before, um, and so um, periods of enslavement. So speaking about that, during the antebellum era of slavery and the post-Reconstruction era of Jim Crow, the government was used to control Black bodies. Give, yeah. <clears throat> give some example now of how black bodies slash people are being controlled. Sure. So uh, again, when I think about violence, I think about violence very, uh, very broadly. Um, and so it, again, it could be cultural uh, itself. So when we belong to institutions, those institute you're born in an institution, uh, you're born into a family. Uh, many people are born in a hospital, uh, right? Uh, you go to school, it's an institution. You seek your first uh, first job. These institutions were 
uh, and I, I, I struggle to think of an example of one that wasn't created during a time of Black exclusion from, uh, from the polity, Black exclusion from full participation uh, in society. And so that means the rules of how, uh, of, of what is deemed to be appropriate and inappropriate, the rules of what is criminalized, right, um, what is is deemed to be uh, normative and not were formed at a time that excluded blacks. And so we see it uh, operating in uh, in terms of in schools or in employment, uh, that this is a professional way of, uh, of dress and it's a cultural assault. We see curricular violence uh, happening in, uh, in the schools where there are, uh, where, where the uh, history that is taught uh, privileges a Eurocentric uh, perspective and excludes, with very few uh, examples, uh, excludes perspectives that uh, that do not support that. And so those are, you know, various uh, various forms uh, of violence. Uh, I see it when, uh, in many of the stories that I uncover, one of the most painful uh, was looking at. Um, an incident that happened at a bodega in um, uh, somewhere in, uh, in New York City, one of the uh, one of the boroughs, and there was a uh, a white uh, woman who was um, buying something in the store and accuses a young black boy maybe nine years old of groping uh, of groping her uh, because again these ideas about uh, who we are um, are uh, are used, um, and these ideas are formed through stereotypes uh, that we see in uh, in the media, stereotypes in film uh, about uh, about our criminality. And so uh, it was a very, uh, very, very painful. Uh, one for me to uh, to look at, and it got some attention. But uh, but what happened was uh, in video that viewed the incident, it was discovered that the young boy didn't grope this woman at all. In fact, as he walked past her in a crowded uh, bodega, uh, his book bag grazed her. But instead of apologizing, you know, this woman, because of her entrenched ideas about uh, about Blacks, uh, because of those entrenched ideas, her attack simply changed, shifted. She didn't apologize to the boy, but says that his mother, who defended him, uh, scared her and was being, uh, was being particularly uh, aggressive. And so I just want to highlight the ways that daily mobility uh, for uh, for for those who whose embodiment, like my own, is black, um, daily mobility is a psychological uh, psychological attack, and there's a weight that we bear uh, that others uh, that others do not. Yeah, and it, you know, when when I think about how I would answer that question, first the first thing that would come to my mind is the word Karen. Right. Mm -hmm. Because <laughs> that scenario you talked about with the boy uh, falls right into that. I mean, the, the, the one that got me and it, all of them irritate me. But the one that got me was 
I think it was Oakland, California, and the woman mm. called the police because this black family was having a barbecue at a public park. Yes. And it was like, yes. yeah, and it was just yes. kind of like, really? It's like, do you mm-hmm. not understand the concept of parks? Do you not understand the concept of barbecues? I mean, what, yes. what about that was a threat to you and the community, right? Mm-hmm. You know, yes. and and, yes. and then flip around literally like, I'd say within, it was during that same year. It was here in Georgia, I think. And it was somebody was having a birthday party. And these guys in these pickup trucks with these Confederate flags come rolling through there. You know, and wasn't too far from me. Yeah, and I'm like going, yeah. okay. So if we had did something yeah. to them, we'd been wrong, right? You know. So I mean, but that both of those are examples of control, where it's like we're going to tell you what you, we're going to show you who we are and and where you belong and and how we feel about you. Um, yeah. And 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 not and not even <laughs> respect you when you are legitimately just being amongst yourself, whether it's a birthday party or barbecue, we're still going to infringe on that because we want to remind you who, where you belong. And that's very good. Yeah. That's kind of, that's kind of my thought. Oh, so I I get an A in your class. Good. All right. (laughs) So, so I developed these frames for how does this operate? How does this pushback operate? Um, and so that frame is what I call it's all white space. Gotcha. You know, uh, it's a chapter in the uh, in the book. It talks about how um, how social control uh, it, it largely depends upon social control and how it gets actualized uh, through the use of of of, uh, of control. And I um, I rely on uh, Shannon Sullivan talks about how white space is amorphous and shifting and ever, uh, ever expanding. And so, uh, so here uh, we see that even the park itself, the public park, it's, it's, uh, we let you use it is the concept, but you have to use it in such a way uh, that we deem uh, appropriate and you're not allowed to. So it, 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 um, uh, it overlaps with other frames uh, that I use. One is, you know, you don't, uh, you don't belong, uh, you don't belong here. Or uh, Massa has spoken, and so in that case, in the um, in the park, the barbecue, uh, you know, the woman's like, well, I've told you to, you know, stop. Massa has spoken, and then waits for almost two hours uh, for the police to come and uh, and. Uh, and shifts. But what I love in that story, um, and I didn't follow through because of the pandemic, uh, but what I love is that uh, that Black folks and our beautiful, uh, wonderful uh, resistance that we have historically, historically uh, been uh, been performing. Uh, Black folks got together and reclaimed the space uh, and would do weekly, uh, weekly barbecues uh, there. Um, and so I love uh, that the story didn't, uh, didn't end there. Yes, ma'am. Um, do you think the dichotomy of being Black and American contributes to how we are controlled? I'm not sure I've, I've 
following. Tell me a little more what you're thinking. I'm not, I don't think I agree, but I want to talk a little more. So uh, the fact that we, we struggle to mm-hmm. maintain our self-identity, right? We struggle to embrace and learn more about our blackness ourselves. But we also feel compelled because we are here in the United States to be an American, to to follow the law, to respect the flag, to serve in the military, to to raise Mm -hmm. the family, to get the house. So we try to do American things, Mm -hmm. but we're always reminded that we're black. And then when we try to, okay, well, we embrace our blackness, then we get caught up in, in these scenarios where okay, well, since you are that black, you're pro-black, we're going we're gonna to remind you that in America, there's certain things. So that's why I mm-hmm. say in, in, in my thought process, okay. trying, to, trying to be black and be American <laughs> has always been a okay. conflict for us. Does that contribute to us being able to be controlled? Gotcha. So the original title of the book was Blackout. Um, and so for me, what I say is... Um, we are complex and contradictory, right? We have lots of uh, we have lots of uh, of facets uh, of our uh, our identity, and you're absolutely right. In a historical uh, perspective, during uh, the period of enslavement, um, you know, there's there's kind of only one uh, one identity. So if we look at um, you know, it's a caste society, caste. You know, you're, uh, there isn't much movement. Uh, there isn't that opportunity uh, for, uh, for movement. And so, um, so now in a contemporary uh, perspective, in some ways, um, I think, again, it taxes us even more because while many people think that the first thing that people of color say when something happens to them in society is, oh, I, you know, this is, I know what this is. This is I'm, uh, because I'm Black. But the truth is we go through all the extra machinations like, okay, did I pull my pants up? Was I, was I too loud? Did I do that? We've been indoctrinated in those, uh, in those ways. And so go through all of those and then figure out, okay, no, I know what this is. You know, this is, uh, you know, this is because, uh, because I'm black. So for me, the concept of blackout, I think that's uh, how I would answer your question. Uh, that black bodies are often welcome in physical and social white space, but it's the black embodiment that is not. Uh, And so for me, black embodiment is about, uh, you know, use of the flesh in a way to convey certain cultural uh, messages about our identity, our consciousness, our belonging to a social group. Uh, And and it is is not, uh, in my experience, it's not true that everyone whose skin is black, you know, has that type of conscious uh, consciousness. And so oftentimes something happens to raise your awareness, your uh, your consciousness. I hope it happens for people younger in, in life, because for me, when it happens when you're later, uh, you will uh, lose, uh, lose your mind because it is a fundamental reorganization of like, wait, I thought this is who we were as a U.S. society. And so that recognition that the ideals that we hold are not 
Uh, and it's still a beautiful country. It's still a land that I, uh, that I love, uh, but that doesn't mean that I am not critical of some uh, aspects when we are not holding up to our ideals. Anyone that I love, in uh, I am I want the best for them, and I and I with my children, with my students, with my friends, and so it is the same for me uh, and this country, land that I love, to be able to say no, we have not held up uh, to this ideal. Anti-blackness is real. Um, people who uh, were being assaulted uh, on uh, on the daily, and these are some of the ways. Uh, uh, how? Hmm. So real quick, because we're we're up against it, but I I, I gotta ask you this question: If a white person buys your book, what do mm-hmm. you want them to get out of it? I want them to see themselves. Um, I want them to see their part in uh, in continuing violence against uh, against black bodies. I think in many ways we celebrate uh, that as a country we have decided that overt white supremacy is socially unacceptable. Uh, that, uh, and I think about an image, a graphic uh, that Safe House Progressive Alliance for Nonviolence did uh, in the early 2000s and that Ellen uh, Tzulo is, uh, is adapted. But it's the idea that overt white supremacy is socially unacceptable. So the use of the N-word, burning crosses, lynching, but what the what they make clear is that covert white supremacy still goes on and we do not talk about it because in in the conclusion you have to reach is that as a, as a society that kind of covert white supremacy is socially acceptable and it cannot be and it should not uh, be and that covert white supremacy includes things like the curricular violence that I talked about like colorblindness uh, like racist mascots like the oh it's just a joke you couldn't uh, take that they didn't mean anything uh, anything by it Uh, like you know celebrations of Columbus uh, Day Confederate flags. I want them to see themselves and not celebrate that, oh, I'm not saying inward, inward, inward. I'm not burning crosses. Oh, but it's so much better than it used to be. That is a, um, that is a, a framework that is so objectionable to me. Um, and so I want them to see themselves and their, uh, their continuing role in uh, in white uh, supremacy, uh, and it's only when you see uh, yourself and your contributions that I think uh, that we have a shot uh, of making uh, making the change that is so needed. Barbara Harris Combs, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much. Appreciate you. Thank you very much. I really appreciate your time. All right, guys, and we're going to catch y'all on the other side. All right, and we are back. So uh, we didn't have time to do the normal plugging thing. So let me let me do the plug for uh, Professor Harris Combs. 
So her book is primarily an ebook right now. Uh, but you can get it at Amazon or anywhere else. But if you if you go to UGA Press, uh, they uh, they they they're offering a coupon to get her book, and I think it's like thirty percent off or something like that. And I may be able to, I don't know, post it. I, I'm not. Don't hold me to that. Um, but yeah, if you go to UGA Press, you can get Bodies Out of Place. Uh, for like 30% off. And she basically said, just reach her, um, you know, at her on LinkedIn is her primary uh, uh, connection as far as uh, getting in touch with her if you need anything uh, like that. Um, and then if you, if, if you go to LinkedIn or whatever, you should be able to uh, get her email or whatever, but let me see. Uh, she said I could give it out. So her email at work is B combs two, the number two. So B C O M B S two at Kennesaw K E N N E S A W dot edu. So if you if you like what you heard and you want to reach out to her and have her come uh, to your events or anything like that, then that's the best way to reach her if you're not connected with her on LinkedIn and she promises that she's going to do better and get on other stuff. <laughs> that's what she told me. Anyway, so uh, now we'll get to our next guest. And, uh, you know, this is, again, like I, I told y'all at the beginning, this is a blessing. Uh, this is somebody that, just like Ms. Taub, I have seen on TV a lot. Uh, and uh, basically just asked her to come on, and she said, yeah. <laughs> and so uh, she's here. Uh, and this is Miss Ariva. Martin, passionate, outspoken, and insightful, Ariva Martin is one of the country's leading influencers shaping media today. A producer, content creator, commentator, and talk show host, Ariva is an audience favorite on networks including CNN, HLN, and CBS, and on a long list of shows from Dr. Phil and the Doctors to Face the Truth and Good Morning America. She has produced over 350 episodes of her web-based current affairs talk show, The Special Report with Ariva Martin, and her opinion-based news show, Ariva Martin Out Loud, on KBLA Talk Radio. She has developed show concepts and interviewed over 1,000 guests, including dignitaries, subject matter experts, celebrities, athletes, and everyday people. She's created content across social media platforms that has garnered millions of impressions and views. Ariva's sharp commentary on the most pressing issues of the moment is highly sought after, and she is a regular contributor to publications including Ebony, CNN.com, and Thrive Global. Her opinion pieces on racial and gender equity, leadership, success principles, mentorship, and disability rights are read regularly by millions. She has been featured in Know Your Legacy Virtual Black History Museum, Power Magazine, Red Book, Essence, Gladys, 
and CEO mom. In 2022, Ariva was identified as a core magazine top 100 influential blacks. A USA Today and Wall Street Journal bestselling author, Ariva's books include The Everyday Advocate, Standing Up for Your Child with Autism, Make It Rain, How to Use the Media to Revolutionize Your Business and Brand, and Awakening, Ladies, Leadership, and the Lies We've Been Told. The award-winning civil rights attorney and advocate is founder and president of Special Needs Network Incorporated, one of the nation's leading disability, children's health, and social justice nonprofits. Ariva has raised millions of dollars for autism and related causes. She is a founding member of Martin & Martin LLP, one of Los Angeles' premier African-American female-owned law firms. She is also founder and CEO of Butterfly Health, a first-of-its-kind mental health digital platform for underserved Medicaid populations. She has won myriad awards, including the L'Oreal Paris Women of Worth, California Black Caucus Leadership Award, Los Angeles County Women of the Year, Ford's Living Legend Award, Holly Rod Foundation Angel on the Path, James Irvine Foundation Leadership Award, and Union Bank's Neighborhood Hero Award. Ariva graduated magna cum laude with a Bachelor of Science degree in economics from the University of Chicago and cum laude from Harvard Law School. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my honor and distinct privilege to have on this podcast as a guest, Miss Ariva Martin. All right, Miss Ariva Martin, how you doing, sister? Doing fantastic, fantastic. Well, again, it is an honor for me to be able to 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 pull you in on this podcast because there's some things that I want somebody of your knowledge and 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 passion for issues to address for my audience, if you don't mind. Absolutely. Let's let's get let's get at it. All right. So. <laughs> Give me your give me your assessment about election twenty twenty two. as everything has kind of been finalized now with Senator Warnock getting elected, what what is your assessment of the election? I'm gonna use the phrase, Eric, slow and steady. So when someone described Joe Biden during his presidential campaign as slow and steady, that was thought to be a pejorative statement, almost an insult. But what we have seen by these midterm elections is that slow and steady Joe got the job done. Typically, the party in the White House loses anywhere from 25 up to the shellacking that Obama took, which was close to 60 seats in the Congress. As of today, the Democratic Party has held the line at about 10 seats in the Congress and picked up a seat in the Senate to give it the majority in the Senate, picked up some Democratic governors and Democratic state houses. Unprecedented in our recent political history. So I think the elections told us that more people in this country share the values and ideals of democracy that Democrats hold, you know, as, as true versus 
some of the loud mouths that we hear on conservative radio, conservative TV, they may be loud, but the majority, I think, has decided that it's Joe Biden and the Democratic Party and Kamala Harris and Raphael Warnock. That's the party that they trust to lead this country. Yeah, and and I, I totally agree with you on that. Um, I think that uh, that red, red wave that everybody was predicting uh, was a, was a terrible forecast. They did not get a good read on uh, the people and, 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 and the damage that had been done right with the uh, Supreme court decision with Dobbs and, and everything else. I think they, they totally misread the tea leaves on that. Absolutely. It's not just with women voters, but with young voters, we saw G a generation Z and young millennials fired up over the Dobbs decision, fired up over the determination that women no longer could control their own reproductive freedom. And even, I've talked to conservatives that say, look, I'm pro-life, but I'm also pro-freedom. I'm pro-people having the freedom of choice to make their own decisions. And that's what I think the Republican Party, they are so tone deaf. And whenever they get beat and beat badly, like in this election, they talk about assessing what they did wrong, but they really never do. And they never really take any cues from like young people who are saying, we are not going to vote for a party that will not enact sensible gun legislation. We are not going to vote for a party that will not uh, allow at least some student debt forgiveness, a party that will not allow women to make their own reproductive free, uh, you know, health choices. Young people and people all this country keep telling Republicans that, but they think, I guess they think that the electorate is stupid and that they can push poor candidates like Dr. Oz in Philadelphia or Pennsylvania. And Herschel Walker, Herschel Walker insulted, you know, just an insult to black people and people all over this country. Uh, They keep putting these really non-electable people up and they keep getting shown over and over again that the, the public is saying no to that. Right. And, and, and I've told some people I'm based here in Georgia and, I, and I've told some people that black folks are upset. And even though Warnock won, uh, black folks, black folks are going to carry this grudge for a while. It's probably over the next two years for sure. Um, because, you know, there was a great commercial Warnock ran where he had this older white gentleman, and he had all these Herschel Walker news clippings and pictures of him and he having a Herschel Walker jersey on. He said Herschel Walker looks really great on this wall, but he will not look good in the United States Senate. And excellent, excellent. Yeah, and so uh, you know, I think that was a general sentiment that people had, especially in the black community. But and but the but the thing that really upset black people here was that it was so close. <laughs> that that's what it was like election night watching results and walk watching Herschel actually have a lead at one point. Black folks are really, really upset. So I think that's going to carry over. Right to be, I, I, Eric, we had every right to be upset. Like again, you know, Donald Trump picking Herschel Walker, who basically lived in Texas, didn't even live in Georgia, uh, personally selecting him to run against Raphael Warren. I thinking that he could split the black vote that black people are so dumb and that we love athletes so much that we can't discern between somebody that's a good athlete and someone who is a good policymaker. 
uh, we have every right to be upset about that. But I, I told people, yes, the election was close, but we have to remember this is deep, deep, ruby red South. This is Georgia, where every other candidate, Republican candidate that ran statewide in Georgia won by a pretty sizable margin. So there's a lot of work to still be done in Georgia, but I think Donald Trump was repudiated. He wasn't even allowed to come into your state in the final months of the campaign. That spoke volumes about, I think, how nervous the Republicans were. And it wasn't a huge margin, but I think it sent a pretty strong message. Don't take us for granted. Don't, you know, play us stupid. And if you're going to come, you better come correct and you better come strong. And they didn't do that in the case of Herschel Walker. Well, that kind of ties into my next question about about the the former president. And I think the timing of him having certain dinner guests probably (laughs) didn't help uh, his case to to come in physically. I think he did some kind of Zoom meeting or whatever, Zoom rally, like in the last minutes. But. I really think him having uh, that dinner with uh, Ye and and the other gentleman, I can't remember his name now, but the Wintes, yeah, yeah, with the the white supremacists, I refer to him as. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. That didn't. If I'm a chair of a political party, uh, I would not want a guy having these folks in his in his corner showing up, but. Uh, you know, I think that that played a major role in, in Trump. Now, and plus, he, he he hurt him last time. That's how Warnock got in in the first place, along with Ossoff. Yes. And, and until the Republican Party decides that, you know, they're going to not just repudiate Trump, but that MAGA base, they're going to keep getting hurt. 2024 looks even worse for Republicans because some of those congressional seats that we lost, they're experts are predicting that we're going to pick those seats back up and more. So this Republican Party, until it really decides that it wants to be an inclusive party and include African-Americans, Latinos in a real way, that it wants to recognize you know, members of the LGBTQ community, they're going to continue to struggle, as they should. And it is my hope that we continue to beat them and beat them badly all over the country. So I and and I think that's going to happen. The only reason, because um, uh, you know, it seems like that that Donald Trump is doubling down. The only thing I think can actually stop him is if one of these cases finally gets to the point of an indictment, and and he has to go to trial. Uh, maybe that'll stop him, but that group will then gravitate to a DeSantis or somebody else they identify and. And and so we'll but we'll see. We'll see how that that shakes out. Let me let me get your quick reaction on Christian cinema switching. Yeah, you know, she's an enigma. She likes a lot of attention. She is entitled. She believes that she should be allowed to maintain her committee positions and her positions in leadership while denouncing the Democratic Party. And, you know, politics is is a game of chess, right? And it's not always about what's right, but it's about what's strategic and what's expedient. So Schumer may be forced to allow her to maintain certain positions in her committees as a way of ensuring that she does not caucus with the Republicans. But I think she is 
uh, pretty bold. I think, she, you know, it's a pretty audacious statement on her part to say, Democrats, I don't want to be a Democrat, but I want the benefits of being a Democrat, the leadership benefits. Uh, so we'll see. I, I, my, I have every reason to believe she will be primaried uh, in her upcoming election, which is in two years, and that she may be taken out. Yeah, well, she's a prop. From my perspective, she's just a problem. Yeah, as a, a congressman out of um, uh, Arizona, uh, Gallego, I think his name is, and I think he he had already. I mean, he's polling at seventy four percent to her like nineteen, <laughs> something like that within the yeah, Democratic and I think circles. Her move was let me become an independent, and you know foil be a foil for the democrat that's the, she's just not trustworthy she's just been a problem and she needs to go i mean well, just plain and simple she just needs to go and and history is on her side as far as the committee assignments because if you remember joe lieberman did the same thing and and yes. schumer and and lieberman were were real tight and so uh schumer wasn't the uh, majority leader, but he was over the DSCC at the time. And so they they actually campaigned for Lieberman, even though he was running as an independent after he had got primaried by uh, that gentleman uh, in Connecticut, who I think his Lamont, I think his name was. And and so yeah, there's they, definitely a historical precedent. You're right for maintaining your committee assignments and caucusing with the Democratic Party. Yeah, so it's going to be, I knew she was going to do it. I knew she was going to do it. I just, <laughs> I just, you know, because I knew Manchin wasn't going to do it because Manchin has been successful being a Democrat in a state that Donald Trump won by 40 points. So he wasn't going to do it. I, but I just knew she was going to, I mean, she's gone all the way from the Green Party to, you know, now she's running as an Arizona independent. So I, we actually might see a race where it's her, Gallego, and Carrie Lake in Arizona in 2024. That I, Oh, I, I fully anticipate, uh, like you said, that Gallego's uh, congressman, because his poll numbers are so high, going head to head with her. And she will be going as an independent. Carrie Lake, <laughs> you know, another Donald Trump uh, selected candidate that the party knew was a disaster. I've read so many articles where her team tried to tell her after she won the primary to move away from that MAGA base, move away from the big lie, uh, you know, to start talking about some policies and things she was going to do for the state and not just, you know, be the, the mouthpiece for Donald Trump. And they said she refused to do it. She absolutely refused to do it. Uh, you know, she had visions of becoming his vice presidential running mate. Uh, she had a lot of, you know, she was, a lot of grandiose delusions, I'll call them. Right, and she and she her main competition right now is Marjorie Taylor Greene, which is another embarrassment that us us Georgians have to deal with. But that's a whole nother a whole nother deal. Let me let me get your re, your reaction to the negative reactions about Brittany Griner coming home. Were you shocked at how upfront? people were uh, in, in criticizing President Biden for bringing her home? Absolutely not. You, you got an African-American woman, so we know how the value of black women are in this country, devalued in so many ways. And then you have a black woman that's a part of the LGBTQ community. 
uh, and we know the attacks that they've been under. So not surprised, you know, racism is real, it's pervasive, it's insidious, and it rears its ugly head in these situations. And people who are in the know, they knew that there was not an opportunity to bring Wayland home. They have him categorized in a completely different category. He's been accused of espionage, which is basically spying. And Russia said categorically no to him. So two wrongs don't make a right. You don't leave two American citizens in Russia because you can't get both of them. And, and Wayland's family came out and he attacked Donald Trump. He said, look, you were in office for four years. We never heard from you. You never made any efforts to bring our brother home. How dare you now attack Biden, who, had, who is at least engaged in the process of trying to bring him home? And they stood in solidarity with Britney's family. And now Britney's family says they're going to become advocates and make it their life's business and work to try to bring home Waylon and other uh, political prisoners. So uh, kudos to the Wayland family for having class and, and just standing up and not being manipulated by Donald Trump, you know, who was one of the main, uh, you know, people criticizing Joe Biden. And people have to remember, you know, Donald Trump just talks a lot of trash. But when you check his record like the Wayland family did, they're like, dude, you were absent on this issue. We never heard from you. So how dare you attack someone who at least tried? They didn't get what we wanted ultimately, but the effort was made. Right. And, and you know, it's, it's, it's sad in a sense that, one, we had to trade the merchant of death to get Brittany, but, but at least we got her, right? And then, but, the, but the, the thing that just really bothers me, and I was talking to another guest, uh, uh, last episode about uh, Robert Goldman. I don't. You remember that young brother that Jesse Jackson went to go get in Syria? Yes, I do. And so mm -hmm. it was like he was on the cover of Jet, of course, because it was a black guy. But he was on the cover of the New York Times too. It was like everybody was happy that Jesse pulled that off, that he was able to get this young American man home. And you fast forward twenty, thirty years. Now you literally have U.S. congressional leaders saying uh, we should have got the white guy. I mean, I mean how, how? Because that's where, that's where we are, Eric. That, that is the insidiousness of racism and the emboldened state that we find you know, ourselves in, where people in Congress, people in positions of authority are willing to say the quiet part out loud. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it, it's sad, but it, it is our reality. But I, I think overall, the general sentiment was that it was the right thing to do. We know had that been one of our male NBA superstars, you know, that would have been a different situation. He would have been treated differently. So, you know, we just got to come to grips with our sexism, with our misogynism, you know, with the misogyny that women suffer in this country, with the misogynal war, which is black. Uh, you know, anti-blackness and anti—you know—women. That is, is just again so pervasive in our culture. Well, uh, attorney, the only thing I would count it maybe a football player, but not a basketball <laughs> player. I think they would have treated the black male basketball player the same way. But a football oh, player, especially in the I'm South, they would have said, "Yeah, get that, get that young man home." You know what I'm saying? Uh, <laughs> I think had it been LeBron, we'd have been having a whole different conversation. Yeah, well, maybe LeBron, but anybody <laughs> else, I don't know. Um, so let me let me pick your legal brain for a minute. Right. We've got 
let me let me well first let me before I could pick your legal brain let me let me ask you since you're out in 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 California let me ask you about this uh recommendation from the task force uh that uh this I, I guess the state is either taking action or or getting ready to take action on uh the recommendation that every citizen every black citizen in the state of California is going to get checked for like $233,000 yeah, you know, I, I wish that were accurate. Uh, okay. You know, everybody be in line to get their check. So, <laughs> brief history. Governor Gavin Newsom in California passed a piece of legislation that was authored by a black woman named Shirley Weber, who's our Secretary of State, to right. create a reparations task force to study reparations. California was not a slave-owning state, but slave owners moved into the state and built uh, businesses and you know property and, and benefited from slavery brought their profits into California. This committee, this commission, has been going around the state taking testimony and studying what, you know, who should get reparations, what reparations should look like, etc. They have four or five economists that have been providing economic models about how to provide reparations. I've been told by one of these commissioners that one of the models did what you said, said that you know. Uh, the appropriate number would be $220,000, uh, $230,000 per black person. When you do the math on that, it's about $546 billion. Now, this commissioner said that was leaked prematurely, that there has not been any formal recommendation about the amount or what reparations should look like, and that that will come later in June when they will issue a final report to the legislature. And the legislature has to decide to, you know, pass a bill it, that mimics whatever these recommendations are. Then the governor will have to sign off on it. So that two hundred twenty, thirty thousand dollars could get reduced down to fifty thousand, or or even less, because I know a part of the reparations plan is not just to give checks to people, but it is to try to do those things that will restore the generational wealth that was lost. That's investing in education. That's investing in you know, home ownership that's investing in black businesses. And I, I just want to make you aware, Eric, I don't know if you've seen it, but I'm representing now a group of 500 plus survivors and descendants in Palm Springs, California. They have a case that I think, you know, should be talked about in the same breath as Tulsa, Oklahoma, because in the 50s and 60s, these black families, predominantly black, some Latino and other minorities were burned out and bulldozed out of their homes in a section of Palm Springs called Section 14, uh, you know, the city fire department actually uh, set the fires to these houses with people's personal belongings inside. The California Attorney General came into Palm Springs, did an investigation, wrote a scathing report, called it a city-engineered holocaust. Uh, and unfortunately, or, you know, consistently, I should say, the Black folks were never paid any restitution, weren't, giving, weren't given any relocation costs. Uh, this upending of their community caused many Black families to be, you know, forced into poverty. Uh, you know, they lost their, their homes, their jobs, again, generational wealth. And uh, I brought that, this case, it started uh, some months ago. I got involved about three or four months ago. Now we're marching towards trying to build a reparations program, a reparative justice uh, you know, settlement that will make 500, it could be as many as 1,000 plus individuals who are survivors and descendants of Section 14 in Palm Springs. We're, we're on a mission. I'm on a mission uh, to make them whole. 
Well, and and so you basically have invited yourself to be on the podcast again to give us an update on where that case is. Uh, do you think you're going to have to go to court or do you think this is something that that you can settle out of court? Well, the city of Palm Springs did something unusual. It issued an apology 14 months ago. Uh, okay. We don't see that happen often. They did do that. And they have indicated a desire to move forward with a settlement. They have actually issued a request for a proposal to hire a reparations consultant to come in and help them uh you know, figure out what the city can do. So right now we are working uh, in concert. Uh, you know, we have laid out what we believe to be viable causes of action under both federal law and state law. So if we need to go to court, we think we have a viable case. But it is our, our hope that we can create a collaborative model that can be used throughout the country by other municipalities as to how to do reparations rather than run and hide and lie and deflect, come clean, stand up, acknowledge the harms of the past. It's not a personal affront to the people sitting in city government today. They didn't do it, but they, as leaders, are responsible to right the wrongs of the folks that were sitting in those offices in the 50s and the 60s. And people often say, Eric, well, why should the people today pay for the sins of yesterday? And the answer is really simple. Because the people today benefit from the sins. You benefit from, you know, the land that was stolen, from the businesses that were stolen. So if you reap the benefits, you need to stand up to the responsibilities. So it's really that simple. And so far, Palm Springs has said they're ready to stand up to the responsibilities. And it's my job to, you know, hold their feet to the fire. Uh, I have a client, Miss Mary, who's 94 years old. So we want this to be resolved in her lifetime. We want her to see the kind of justice that she deserves to see. You know, many of the survivors, the ones that are left in Tulsa, Oklahoma, because that happened in the 20s, they're in their hundreds, 105, 104. So uh, I'm dealing with uh, people in their twilight years, younger than the Tulsa folks, but still 80s and 90s. So uh, the reparations consulting piece that the city has out is for a year. So I hope they're signaling, let's get this done in 2023. Yes, ma'am. Well, I, I'm glad you you brought that to the forefront. And like I said, we we, we want you to come back to, to give us an update on on where that status is. Uh, but since now we, we've gotten to the legal thing, I need you. Uh, we've got about a few minutes left. Kind of give me your assessment about Moore versus Harper, which is. Um, uh, the the redistricting case, and then the two affirmative action uh, university mm-hmm. cases, students for fair admissions versus Harvard, and they also have a lawsuit versus the uh, University of North Carolina that's both being reviewed by the Supreme Court. Yeah, you know, we have a 6-3 conservative majority. Uh, the good news is Patanji Brown-Jackson uh, is on the court, and she's making her presence known. We saw that in the oral argument that happened Monday uh, between the web designer and the state of Colorado over, you know, First Amendment and free speech issues. And, uh, you know, that's the case where Justice Alito made the very crude joke about a kid showing up in a Ku Klux Klan outfit and asking to take a picture with a black Santa. So we got a problem. Uh, we got a problem of integrity. We have a problem of 
uh, trust on our Supreme Court. We have an activist conservative court that sees it as this business to undo many of the rights that we have enjoyed in this country for decades, including the Dobbs decision that we talked about. I'm not very hopeful on the affirmative action cases. I'm not very hopeful on the, the, you know, the voting rights cases, the, the gerrymandering cases. Uh, I think this conservative court is on a mission and they are on a mission to, you know, set us back 50 years or so. The country is afraid. White people are afraid of the browning of this country and they are, kicking and screaming and fighting and doing everything in their will to their willpower, everything in their power uh, to prevent people of color from voting, to prevent people who they deem are unworthy from having the freedoms that we've enjoyed, uh, you know, under this, this, this constitution and this democracy. So I think people need to be very, very aware of this activist court. We need to be doing everything we can to make sure that we have democratic governors and democratic state houses, because a lot of this stuff happens at the state level, even before it makes its way to the Supreme Court. But we are at an inflection point in this country, and some want to send us back to what they believe to be the good old days. And you and I know there was nothing good about the 50s and the 60s for black folks. And yeah, I won't say there was nothing, but you, you get my point. Those were difficult times for us. Uh, you know, a, a mayor, mayoral candidate running against Karen Bass here in Los Angeles said that he wanted to take us back to the 90s. And first question I had in my mind is, you mean were the, the crime bill in 1994 and the mass incarceration? And so when people talk about taking us back, it, it just, it, it, it's a red flag and it's alarming. Yeah, it's never a good conversation when, when folks start talking about they want to go backwards. It's, it's <laughs> never, not for us anyway. It's never a good not conversation. Not for us. But there's, we there, just want to go forward. But real quick, there's this scary theory, and I and it, it escapes me the, the exact wording of it, but it's some kind of theory that the state law in this Moore versus Harper case, that the state law trumps federal law as far as elections go. Uh, you you really yeah. think the U.S. Supreme Court is even as radicalized as they are, are going to basically neuter their own authority? I think if they can carve out a narrow decision that allows state legislators to have more control over, you know, who gets the the final say in the electors that they send to the electoral college, absolutely. I, I think this this Trump lie that the election was stolen from him still resonates with millions and millions of Americans. When they do a poll on that, 74% or so of Republicans believe that the election decision of 2020 was unfair, that there somehow there was some kind of massive fraud. So those numbers are scary to me in an election that we know was absolutely fair and square. Now, do I think the Supreme Court is going to eviscerate its own power I, I have some concerns about that, but do I think they're going to try to figure out a way to side with states on issues uh, that further suppress the will of the people? Absolutely. All right, Sister Martin, well, we, we're going to have to make that the last word, but I appreciate you coming on. Um, and uh, I, I do want you to keep us updated on this, on the, on the Palm Springs case, since you're directly involved in that. That, that would be uh, a historic moment. Uh, not only for those citizens, but for black Americans altogether. 
Absolutely. Thank you so much, Eric. Keep up the good work. Thank you, ma'am. All right, guys, we're going to catch y'all on the other side. All right, and we are back. So let me close out another jam-packed edition of A Moment, Eric Fleming, by thanking my guests, Jennifer Taub, Barbara Harris-Combs, and Areva Martin. Uh, your pre- presence was a blessing uh, for the show, and I hope that the podcast is a blessing for all y'all that listen. Until next time.